Uh, good afternoon. My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Welcome to our off-site uh, facility where we're hosting events during the renovation of our headquarters building. Uh, we hope to be back home around March, April, where we're looking forward to hosting events in our new state-of-the-art auditorium. Um, Today we're going to address a problem that I do not hear members of Congress talking about. I do not hear uh, discussion of civil liberties uh, in the GOP uh, presidential nomination process, but it's something that we really want to tackle today because the erosion of civil liberties in America, I think, is a, is a pressing issue despite the lack of discussion. And I'd like to take just a minute uh, to lay something of a foundation for this subject. I thought the Wall Street Journal had a very good article a few weeks ago on the front page uh, talking about how the government has been using civil asset forfeiture laws to seize cash, cars, boats, and other uh, pieces of property uh, from Americans who have not been convicted of any crime. And this seems to be happening all over. Um, it ranges from uh, very large projects, such as the seizure of a hotel on you know, a sprawling uh, 10 acres of campus worth millions of dollars down to small amounts of money where people are pulled over on the side of a highway during a traffic stop and police officers will just say, empty the cash in your purse, and the officer might say, I think this is drug money. Uh, I'm taking it. Uh, if you want to get it back, contact the state police. So this seizures from people who haven't been convicted of a crime is a serious problem, and it was nice to see that coverage in the Wall Street Journal. A few years ago, the Supreme Court, in a case called Kelo, ruled that it was okay for the government to use its eminent domain powers to take land of some people and hand it over to other parties, uh, oftentimes pri private developers. The drug war has dozens and dozens of negative side effects. Uh, each year, 800,000 people in America are arrested just on marijuana charges. And we've, you've seen on TV these violent militaristic raids on American homes where uh, the police are dressed up in military garb and using battering rams and sometimes flashbang grenades to break into people's homes to conduct uh, raids. And over the last 10 years, uh, with the war on terrorism, we've seen the rise of uh, devices called national security letters. These are subpoenas that FBI agents can serve on business people without having to get that prior advance approval from an impartial judge during the normal uh, search warrant application process. And the recipients of these national security letters are uh, sometimes threatened with jail if they were to tell anybody else about it. Uh, something that's very different from a search warrant where you could complain to reporters, your members of Congress, this sort of thing. There was a good article about this in uh, yesterday's Washington Post. We've also uh, read about and heard about the warrantless wiretaps and the seizures of uh, phone records. Most ominously, I think over the past 10 years, the president also asserted the power to arrest any American and put him in a military prison uh, incommunicado without access to family members or even uh, he asserted that he could deny them contact even with an attorney and access to the courts. This is the enemy uh, combatant controversy. Um, now some people said, well, that's only a few Americans, but that misses the point that our legal system is based upon precedent. And if a precedent could be set in that one case where the president could do that to, to one American, then that is a precedent that could be relied on to do it to others. 
it's not a pretty picture, and I've just scratched the surface. Um, but the good news is, is that we have two new books that are now on the market that explain these disturbing trends in the law. Our for format this afternoon is going to be simple and straightforward. I'm going to introduce each speaker in turn. Our guest will then speak on the thesis of their book for about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, I've also invited a critical commentator, Paul Rosenswag, to give us the benefit of hearing a contrary perspective. Uh, we're going to then take any questions that you may have. Before I start my first introduction, let me ask those of you who came with cell phones, if you just take a moment now just to double check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to our panelists. <laughs> Thank you. Our first speaker uh, began his career in journalism as a news clerk for the New York Times in 1966. He then went on to become a reporter covering at first local stories about uh, politics and poverty. He then went overseas to Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand to cover the war there between 1973 and 1975. He then moved over to Moscow, where he served as the bureau chief of the New York Times from 1977 to 1979. And based on his experience there, he wrote a bestseller that was called Russia, Broken Idols, Solemn Dreams. From there, he moved to Jerusalem and became the bureau chief of the Times uh, in Jerusalem. He won a Pulitzer for his next book that was titled Arab and Jew, Wounded Spirits in a Promised Land. He's written uh, several other highly regarded uh, works about poverty and race relations. And I should say that in between books, uh, he writes uh, online at his website, which is called The Shipler Report. His new book uh, on the civil liberties is, is called The Rights of the People, How Our Search for Safety Invades Our Liberties. So would you please welcome our first author, Mr. David Shipler. Thanks. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be on stage with, with such really esteemed people. I admire all of them in different ways. Uh, and I'm very glad that I'm not, you know, quite a few of you actually braved the rain and came out today. Uh, Tim mentioned asset forfeiture. It's a subject I deal with not in this book, but in uh, a second book that's coming out next spring in a chapter. This book is primarily about the Fourth Amendment, uh, which is the part of the Bill of Rights that's been most challenged and tested by the post 9-11 policies. So I'd like to concentrate on that, uh, if I could, for 15 minutes or so, um, and, and talk a little bit about what's happened to the Fourth Amendment, not just uh, in counterterrorism, but also in criminal law. I'm not a lawyer, by the way. So, Please bear with me. I'm a journalist. Uh, I've listened to a lot of lawyers in the last uh, many years. I've tried to educate myself as well as I could, uh, but I see this issue through a layman's eyes. I don't think that there's much left of the Fourth Amendment in criminal law. These are not my words, but the words of District Judge Paul Friedman, uh, a respected federal district court judge here in D.C. who presides over trials of uh, alleged drug dealers, uh, gun carriers, and other criminals. He gets a lot of suppression motions from defense attorneys to exclude evidence that, is, that they believe has been unconstitutionally obtained. The Fourth Amendment is a, uh, a protection whose violation or observance you can see across quite a broad spectrum 
of government behavior. Uh, there is a continuum of government methods to do searches. And that continuum has been broadened and expanded both by technology and by counterterrorism, which of course is aimed at preventing incidents before they take place, not just finding out who committed the crime afterwards. This complicates the problem tremendously because the criminal justice system has enough difficulty, it seems to me, finding the perpetrator of a crime already committed, even more so finding someone who is predicted to be on the verge of committing a crime. When we look at this, I think we have to remember, it bears remembering, that every major constitutional right, especially those contained in the Bill of Rights, has been kindled by its violation. The separation of powers by the autocracy of monarchs, freedom of speech and of the press by censorship, the right to counsel and due process by the star chamber of the 16th and 17th centuries, that men could torture other men to extract confessions led to the Fifth Amendment's guarantee that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Religious persecution, both in England and America, generated the First Amendment's ban on any law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the writs of assistance issued by the British as blanket authorizations for unlimited searches fired passions that led to the Fourth Amendment. Let's remind ourselves of the words of the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people, and, and listen carefully because there is a key word in this amendment. The word is secure. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched, particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. It pivots on the word secure. The framers meant secure from government, an appropriate observation at the Cato Institute. This is important because often in the debate that's followed 9-11, we've talked about security and liberty as if it were a zero-sum game. We have to give up liberty for security or vice versa. I'll come back to this because I don't think it's quite the case. And it's interesting that there's a kind of bipartisan complacency about this, as Tim mentioned in his introduction. It's odd because the violation stoked the embers of the American Revolution. A man's house is his castle, and whilst he is quiet, he is as well guarded as a prince in his castle said James Otis in court as he defended Boston merchants against writs of assistance in 1761. He was using the phrase, a man's house is his castle, first attributed to Sir Edward Coke in the 17th century. This writ, Otis went on, if it should be declared legal, would totally annihilate this privilege. Custom house officers may enter our houses when they please. We are commanded to permit their entry. Their menial servants may enter, may break locks, bars, and everything in their way. 
And whether they break through malice or revenge, no man, no court may inquire. The courtroom was packed. Inside, there was a young lawyer by the name of John Adams, who found this moment a turning point. As David McCulloch writes, every one of the immense crowded audience went away as he did, ready to take up arms against writs of assistance. And Adams himself wrote later, then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child independence was born. In researching this book, I went looking for the Fourth Amendment first on the streets of DC in the middle of the night with a couple of DC police units who kindly offered to take me along with them. One, a narcotics unit that worked undercover for the most part. The other, uh, what's called the power shift, which is a unit tries to get, trying to get guns off people. The power shift uh, is particularly interesting. Uh, but first, let me just outline the spectrum of government behavior here. The part of the spectrum closest to the Fourth Amendment is the traditional search warrant. It requires an affidavit by a law enforcement officer that there is probable cause to believe that evidence of a certain crime will be found in a certain place, and that has to be signed by an impartial judge. That's the closest to the Fourth Amendment. The next step is what I'm going to describe to you, which is on the streets, pedestrian, pedestrian frisks, vehicle searches, where no warrant is reasonably expected since evidence can be moved, uh, dangerous situations may be encountered at the moment, police have to make split-second decisions. The next step away from the Fourth Amendment is the Foreign Intelligence <coughs> Surveillance Act, which I think Susan will talk about because her book is excellent on all of this. The, the, the clandestine searches that have taken place have been expanded by amendments to that act and other statutes contained in the Patriot Act. Then the national security letters, which Tim described. Uh, the national security agency's uh, surveillance, which has minimal judicial oversight, and so forth. So here, we're pretty close to the Fourth Amendment on the streets of DC, where we're dealing here with ordinary criminal matters, not, not counterterrorism. The power squad operates in the middle of the night, and they operate in uniform in marked cars because they want to see what will happen, how people will react when they come up to a group of people standing around in the street. It was a June night. It was warm. Uh, I was in the car with the sergeant who led the unit. We drove up. So there were two young men on the street, on the street corner, just hanging out. Uh, the sergeant got out of the car, and the two young men started walking away an indication he thought of guilt. He said, good evening, gentlemen. He had a nice way of befriending everyone. Good evening, gentlemen. And he often, you know, go on to say, got any guns or drugs this evening? As if he were, you know, sort of saying, got a cigarette I could bum? In this case, he really didn't say much of anything to these young men. He said, good evening, but that was it. And they did something quite remarkable. Without being asked to stop, without being asked anything, they pulled up their t-shirts to show they had no guns stuck in their waistbands. They were so accustomed to the police coming around, this is just a couple of miles from here, in the middle of the night, looking for guns, that they pulled their t-shirts up as casually as we take our shoes off at airports. But they weren't in an airport, they were standing in their own neighborhood, not far from their own houses. 
And my guess is if this went on in Georgetown or on, at, at, at a college campus uh, or somewhere else uh, where upper middle class white folks were, there'd be quite an uproar. But it happens in black neighborhoods every night. In that night, uh, the, the officers uh, thought they, you know, they, they did searches of well, more than a score of people, 20, 30, and, and of vehicles. Now, they were operating in a fairly permissive environment created by the courts. Um, in uh, 1968, the Supreme Court ruled in Terry versus Ohio that police needed something quite uh, less than probable cause to do a superficial pat-down of a pedestrian. It could be reasonable suspicion. A somewhat ill-defined concept, but nevertheless, reasonable suspicion that someone was armed. This was for the protection of the officer, the protection, as the police officers say, of the subject, because you don't want to get into you know, a conflict uh, that can end badly. And out of that decision, and in the context of many other court decisions, a certain vehicle searches have been permitted without um, warrants and without probable cause, uh, for example, or with, with probable cause created by uh, the police officers witnessing something. For example, if there's evidence in plain view. Uh, plain view uh, means that you can see it without you know, a search. If, there, uh, if, if it, in plain view has then been, has then kind of morphed into plain feel, if you're doing a pat down and you feel something that feels like a bag of crack, then you can do a search. Plain feel has ex then extended into plain odor. If a traffic cop uh, stops you and you roll down the window and he thinks he smells marijuana, he can do a search even without your consent, and so forth. So uh, what this means is the police officers operate within kind of hazy lines, uh, and they have to make decisions on the spot and do interpretations. And some officers who are less honest than others engage in what's called uh, testilying by some defense attorneys. They fudge the facts. Uh, they put themselves just on this line of what's constitutional. They try to talk their way into uh, cars, uh, so to get people to, to consent voluntarily to searches, and, and usually they're successful. Uh, you know, uh, about seven years after the Supreme Court ruled in Miranda versus Arizona that police had to inform you of your right not to answer questions, uh, five to four, by the way. Some people don't remember what a close decision that was. The court in uh, Schneckloth versus Bustamante, six to three, ruled that police do not have to advise you of your right to refuse a search. And therefore, consent is often given unknowingly, uh, not informed. I asked many people who were searched on the streets after they were searched, you know, did you give consent? They looked at me you know, completely blankly. And, and actually, some of them looked at me as if I were a little crazy. You know, a young black guy surrounded at 2 a.m. by six cops, uh, you know, is hardly going to feel free to say no. But um, in any case, he does have the right to say no, unless there is probable cause and the police can go ahead and, and search without his consent. A sergeant who headed, uh, who created a, a drug interdiction unit at Union Station, which I believe is still operating told me that almost everyone he asked uh, to open their suitcases after they got off the train when he suspected that possibly they were drug couriers uh, consented to be searched, including drug couriers, because they thought they'd hidden the drugs so well that 
you know, they wouldn't be found, or he asked some of them later, they thought if they'd refused that his suspicions would be aroused, he'd go ahead and search anyway. So this case, uh, Schneckloth, was, was quite important. Uh, Thurgood Marshall issued a vir vigorous dissent, but nevertheless, it's the law of the land. Police do not have to advise you of your right not to be searched. I think, frankly, it's a little pathetic that in the United States, schools don't teach people their constitutional rights, uh, and why should we have to depend on the police to tell us what they are? But nevertheless, that's the, that's the law, and that's the rule, and that's the way we go about it. People do not know their rights, and they don't exercise their rights, which I think is also a problem because rights not exercised are ultimately lost. Uh, I want to just uh, touch on one case under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act before I, before I stop, because it's a, it's a particularly interesting example of how FISA, as amended by the Patriot Act, was used. Uh, and, it's, and we know more about this case than practically any other. It was the case of Brandon Mayfield, whom most of you probably know is the Portland lawyer whose fingerprint was misidentified by the FBI as being on a plastic bag of detonators near the Madrid train bomb. That error, that was a lab error, was a kind of pivot point around which a whole theory of the crime was, was woven by the FBI. And it's scary in the sense that the FBI would not take no for an answer from the Spanish National Police, who kept saying, it's not a match. They issued what they called a negativo report. And a couple of times, we taxpayers paid for the FBI to go fly to Madrid to try to persuade the Spanish National Police that it was, in fact, a match. So what happened was they used FISA to go in secretly to Mayfield's home and office. We know this because Mayfield sued afterwards. Uh, so many documents were, were, were obtained and got out into the public that ordinarily we don't see because FISA is a secret warrant, basically. I just want to mention one thing that happened because it's quite interesting and disturbing. The evidence that was collected was fragmentary and was given misinterpretations. A computer whose hard drive was copied had been used to visit websites in Spain, but by his middle school daughter who was researching a fantasy vacation for a school assignment. A phone number in Spain seemed to be incriminating, except that it, it turned out to be the phone number of an exchange program they were considering for their son. Mayfield had, did not have a valid passport and hadn't had one for a decade and had not traveled abroad. But the FBI, instead of looking at that and, and having second thoughts about whether they'd gotten a culprit, came to the conclusion that actually he must have traveled under an alias with false documentation. And that proposition even found its way into a sworn affidavit when they finally, finally got Title III warrants. So here is a whole situation in which FISA contributed to, not wholly, and maybe these, this thing, this could have happened anyway with traditional warrants, FISA contributed to a weaving a whole case of, 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 of a mistaken theory of the crime, which obviously uh, endangered Mayfield terrifically. And so this is, the, this is where I'd like to end here, because it seems to me that the question of risk 
in a society is a really important one to consider. Uh, as I said earlier, liberty and security, I don't think, are a, a zero-sum game. There are three problems with the kind of violations or the evasions of the Fourth Amendment's requirements that are taking place. One is, of course, the intrusion into personal space and privacy. And that's a whole, you know, that's a whole afternoon of discussion all in and of itself. I think it's a problem. Some people don't. Second is the inefficiency uh, of intelligence gathering and law enforcement. I mean, to have a, a unit of six or eight police officers spending five or six hours a night searching 20 to 30 people who are innocent and coming up with a gun maybe once every three days does not strike me as a particularly efficient use of law enforcement manpower, frankly. And finally, there's the problem of errors. Uh, if you need a criminal predicate, you hone the investigation, you test the evidence, you permit rebuttal, and in the end, it's all a truth-finding process, isn't it? Uh, observing the Bill of Rights actually enhances the accuracy of the investigatory process. I remember uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union talking to a Soviet uh, law professor who uh, had visited the United States and Britain, and he had watched the whole criminal justice process. He was very impressed with the jury system, for example. And he wrote, uh, he helped write legislation and helped work uh, with police departments in Russia to help them learn how to do investigations. He said they didn't know how to do investigations because they never had to test the evidence. It was not a truly adversarial system. Uh, so they could go by whim and hunch and by what the local party secretary said. I think there is a danger of flabbiness and laziness when the evidence is not tested and subjected to an adversarial system. The framers were ingenious in creating a system where security was actually enhanced by liberty. Because democracy carries risk. Eliminating risk is a goal of a police state, not a pluralistic, open, democratic system. And there's another kind of risk, as Alexander Hamilton warned us in the Federalist Papers. Safety from external danger is the most powerful director of national conduct, he said. Even the ardent love of liberty will, after a time, give way to its dictates. To be more safe, he said, even nations most attached to liberty at length become willing to run the risk of being less free. The risk of being less free. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, our second speaker today is also eminently qualified uh, to discuss the erosion of civil liberties in the United States because she is the president of the American Civil Liberties Union, a position she has held for about three years now. Uh, before her election, uh, she had served on the ACLU's uh, National Board of Directors for uh, more than 20 years. The ACLU has done so much good work uh, over the years. Cato sometimes joins forces with the ACLU when we will sign on to briefs uh, together sometimes when issues involving uh, constitutional rights come before uh, the Supreme Court. And in my own work, when I receive phone calls or emails from people around the country who are telling me that they're getting pushed around, that their rights are being trampled, I often refer them to their local ACLU affiliate so that they can get some institutional support uh, for their uh, situation. 
In addition to our guest responsibilities as president of the ACLU, she teaches constitutional law at the Brooklyn Law School, uh, and she's published several books and scholarly articles in the law journals. Uh, she's also a frequent guest on radio and TV programs where she discusses the Bill of Rights and the Supreme Court. Her new book is entitled Taking Liberties, The War on Terror and the Erosion of American Democracy. Please welcome Susan Herman. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I'm sure that the fact that I quoted you in my book is not the only reason I was invited. <laughs> um, let me say that one of the things that I very much enjoyed about David's book is the fact that although we come from completely different disciplines, as you've just heard, I'm a lawyer, but I've been teaching about the Constitution, including the Fourth Amendment, for more decades than I'd like to admit to right now. Uh, but having come from these different perspectives, David is an excellent reporter. It was so gratifying to me to see that you know, just able to report on the facts and look at the situation, he reached most of the conclusions that I've reached and that the ACLU has reached about where the Fourth Amendment is, why it's important, how it's jeopardized, and, and what that means for all of us. So, you know, I regard us as really you know, kind of coming at this common educational enterprise from just two different disciplines and different perspectives. Um, I think what I want to start with is addressing the question that, that Tim raised at the outset, which is, it wasn't a question, it was a statement, the fact that Congress is not really discussing the erosion of civil liberties since 9-11. Now, this is a highly educated crowd. Has it come to your attention that we just had the 10th anniversary of 9-11? Okay, some of you may even know that yesterday was the 10th anniversary of the Patriot Act. But as Tim was saying, there's not a whole lot of discussion, you know, certainly not in Congress, about What's happened to our civil liberties since 9-11? Now, I think the main reason for that is I think that we've set a frame on this issue and accepted a lot of assumptions in the fall of 2001 that continue to be with us, you know, largely for emotional reasons and partially just through a lot of different kinds of inertia, which really are, you know, contribute to our not asking more questions. Uh, you know, George Lakoff talks about you know, once you have a frame, on an issue and you think you, you know the perspective, you have these underlying assumptions, facts just bounce right off of the frame. So it's very difficult to start a conversation by citing facts because you know, the, the facts are just bouncing off. So here's the chief frame, it seems to me. There, there are a number of different you know, um, assumptions that I want to look at. And the first one, I think, which was uh, the assumption underlying the Patriot Act, as well as Guantanamo and a lot of other things that we were doing, is very much related to what David was talking about, about risk. And it, I think the most extreme version of this was Vice President Cheney's talking about the 1% doctrine. Yet there's a 1% chance that there are weapons of mass destruction out there. We have to act as if it's true, because what if it's not? We're taking a risk that we won't be safe. So it seems to me that the theme of the Patriot Act was let's create dragnets. Let's give the government all of these enhanced powers because we want to reduce the risk that there might be a terrorist out there that we wouldn't be able to catch because the government didn't have enough power. So where David started us is that there are all these surveillance dragnets in the Patriot Act. And those, I think, are actually the, the things that, uh, the aspects of the Patriot Act that most Americans are most familiar with. We heard the librarians who talk about the national security letters and the library provision and all of the ways in which the Patriot Act makes it easier for the government to find out more about all of us without going through the kind of procedural protections that the Fourth Amendment would otherwise provide um, in terms of both having some sort of predicate, as David says, for action, you know, some reason to suspect somebody, a good reason to search or to seize, and then also some sort of judicial review, having the opinion of a neutral third party that really, in fact, there is a good enough reason. 
So when you think of the metaphor of the dragnet, yes, indeed, we're giving the, the government this very broad power now to find out more about all of us to just make it much easier. And the idea is, well, you know, maybe the government is going to discover some information that will enable us to catch a terrorist that we might not otherwise have caught. But when you think about the metaphor of the dragnet, it is also at the same time necessarily true that you're going to be catching the unintended. That's the very nature of dragnets. You troll too far. You're going to catch innocent people, and you're going to end up doing harm. So the genesis of my book, you know, my opening anecdote, was I was having uh, dinner one night and sitting next to a woman who was not an ACLU member, as I think you'll gather in a minute. So she said, you know, speak to the person to the left of you. She said, so tell me what the ACLU is doing these days. Pause. But don't tell me about that Guantanamo stuff. She said, I'm so sick of hearing about that. She said, why should I care about them when they're not even Americans? So, you know, I had some answers to that, and I actually tried, but, you know, she kept waving me off, and she kept saying, you know, all this had just had nothing to do with her. So it seems to me that that's assumption number two, you know, from the fall of 2001. Assumption number one, we have to give the government lots of powers, because what if you know, they couldn't have caught a terrorist unless they had this particular power? Assumption number two, this isn't going to affect ordinary Americans. It won't affect innocent people. Why should I worry if I'm not a terrorist? Well, you know, on page one of my book, I make a whole list of the reasons why I think ordinary Americans do need to worry. And my examples come not only from surveillance, but from a lot of other parts of the Patriot Act and also other powers that the government had enhanced in the fall of 2001. Uh, so one of the first things that I want to talk about, you know, in terms of, you know, David was talking about the central metaphor here, the another thing we heard in the fall of 2001, is, well, you have to give up some liberty in order to be safe. Okay, so that is assuming that we have a balance going on here, which, of course, in some sense, we always do. We're always talking about the risk of, you know, to our safety as compared to the risk to our rights. But um, I think that most people are really not aware of the costs to our liberties and the costs to ordinary Americans. So let me start with the most dramatic examples. These are things that have not happened to very many people, but when they've happened, they're devastating. And it seems to me that all the dragnet thinking in the Patriot Act, not just the surveillance provisions, but the expansions of criminal law, uh, deprivations of due process, you're just doing without due process in, in various ways, really invite arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. And as David is saying, contribute to inaccurate law enforcement, because we're just too willing to let down the barriers. So David has already talked to you about one you know, well-known victim of mistake, um, Brandon Mayfield. Yeah, and as David was saying, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was used against Brandon Mayfield, which is curious because he's an American citizen. So that's a whole story. One kind of thing the Patriot Act does is it takes the foreign intelligence gathering mechanisms that were designed to enable us to know what the Soviet embassy was up to during the Cold War, and more and more applies them to American citizens. So that's one kind of incursion. But let me tell you, since David has talked a little about that case, and I think that's also a kind of well-known case, about somebody else who may not be as familiar to you. Uh, this is somebody who is not himself an American citizen. He was an exchange student from Saudi Arabia. His name is Samuel Hussein. And he was prosecuted while he was attending the University of Idaho as a graduate student in computer studies. He was prosecuted for providing material support to terrorism. Now, exactly what he was charged with kept fluctuating. What happened in this case was that the FBI concluded that there was a sleeper cell in Idaho and that Samuel Hussein was the ringleader. And a lot of the reason that they conduct, concluded this was that they had free reign 
to just look through all of his financial records, and they were able to discover what kinds of contributions he was making to Muslim charities. Now, they worked very hard on whether he was contributing to any charity that had any link to any terrorism group. And one thing that I think a lot of people also aren't aware of is that when the war on terror in 2001 gave the government expanded powers, first of all, not, only, not all the powers are restricted to terrorism investigation. A lot of them are just new powers. Second of all, most of the powers involving terrorism investigations are not only about al-Qaeda. They're about all sorts of other groups, Hamas, rebels in Chechnya, the Kurds in Turkey, the democracy group in um, Iran called the PMOI or the MEK. So you know, it, all sorts of different things. So when the government began to suspect Sami al-Hussein because of, on the basis of his contributions to charities, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you that's one of the pillars of Islam to give to charity. So you know, there's nothing inherently suspicious about making contributions. Um, at first they thought that he was supporting al-Qaeda, but that didn't pan out and their theory kept changing. Uh, then they thought he was supporting Hamas, then they thought he was supporting Chechnyan rebels, and it was just, it was something. So finally, by the time they got to trial, where their proof ended up, they had absolutely no proof that this man supported terrorism in any way. In fact, he had been leading candlelight vigils on campus after 9-11, protesting terrorism and trying to explain to the people in Idaho that Islam is not inherently a, you know, a jihadist religion, that it doesn't mean that you know, you're going to be a terrorist because you're a Muslim. So the chief proof that the government had a trial, the basis for the prosecution, was the fact that Sami was at, um, acting as a webmaster for an Islamic group on campus, the Islamic Assembly of North America. That group was not on any blacklists, surprisingly enough. So many other Muslim groups were. But what he was doing for them, serving as webmaster, one of the things he was doing, because they were trying to promote a fuller understanding of Islam and what it was and wasn't, is he would post links to all sorts of different things. You moderate Islamists writing about their own point of view. And he also posted links to people explaining jihad from the jihadist point of view. Well, the theory of the government, they did have the theory for a while that there were links that you could link through to a place where you could contribute, but his defense attorney pointed out at trial that those links had been disabled before he actually started posting his own links. So what he was being tried for was to posting links, you know, by the time you got to trial, posting links to hateful speech, controversial speech, and you know, that was defined as material support of terrorism. Well, those of you who are lawyers are thinking, well, what about the First Amendment? Well, his defense attorney said, this bio prosecution violates the First Amendment. I move to dismiss the prosecution. And what he said ultimately to the jury was he said, if Samuel Hussein can't post links on a website saying, here's what a bunch of people think, see for yourself, then the New York Times could be prosecuted for posting, uh, uh, publishing an editorial by a member of Hamas explaining what they're all about. And we can't have conversations hearing all different people's points of view. And that's a serious intrusion on the freedom of speech, the freedom of thought, the freedom of association, the freedom of religion. The judge said motion denied opinion to follow, but no opinion ever followed because that opinion would have been really hard to write. So the sort of happy ending to the story, I have to tell you that this man spent 17 months in solitary confinement and his family was shipped back to Saudi Arabia in the middle of the trial. So he had to go through all this without his family. And so you know, it was serious derailment here. He was almost finished with his dissertation, but never got to finish. He's now back in Saudi Arabia, scratching his head, trying to reconcile his image of America as the land of the just with what happened to him. 
And the happy ending on the other side of that is that the jury of 12 Idaho citizens, including retired forest worker, you know, banker, or teacher, acquitted him. They got the First Amendment. They said, no, you know, you can't prosecute somebody for something like this. Okay, so first of all, what does this tell us? The material support laws, which were expanded by the Patriot Act, were broadened in all sorts of different ways. Um, they allow the prosecution of people for providing expert advice or assistance to any group that's considered a terrorist group designated by the government or to any individual who's believed by the government to be a terrorist. Expert advice or assistance, pretty vague phrase. Uh, some of you may recall there was a Supreme Court case a couple of years ago brought by a group called the Humanitarian Law Project. This is a group of people in California who were a peace group. And they were determined to help terrorists to see the error of their ways and to learn peaceful dispute resolution methods instead of using you know, violence. So they would try to train you know, Kurds in Turkey, for example, to use processes through the UN to address their you know, grievances against the Turkish government instead of using violence. Well, when they saw this expansion of language in the Patriot Act, it made them a little nervous because they wondered, well, could they be prosecuted for providing expert advice or assistance to terrorists? The whole theory of the Patriot Act and the material support laws is, let's make terrorist groups 100% retroactive. Nobody's allowed to talk to them. Nobody's allowed to come close to them. Well, when their case got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, sure, the statute could apply to them. Yeah, expert advisor assistance. They're teaching the terrorists how, you know, how to use peaceful dispute resolution methods, and therefore, the terrorists won't have to spend their own resources figuring that out, and therefore, they're going to have more money to spend on bombs. What about the First Amendment? Well, the Supreme Court said, well, yeah, okay, they want to talk to terrorists, but whether or not they can depends what they want to say. And you know, the prosecutor in this case, essentially, if somebody wanted to prosecute them for telling terrorists not to be terrorists, then a prosecutor could say, you know, you can't do that. You can't get close to terrorists, and, and the First Amendment has to step aside. At the argument, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, does that mean that somebody could be prosecuted for teaching a terrorist to play the harmonica? Well, Elena Kagan, who was Solicitor General at the time, also told the court that it would allow a prosecution of a lawyer for representing a terrorist group. So this is extremely broad, but a real dragnet. I want to tell you one other story about somebody who had a major impact from all of this, who's related to the Samuel Hussein prosecution, because this gets up back in a way to the Fourth Amendment. There was a, a man who was born in Wichita, Kansas. His name was Lavoni T. Kidd. And he went to the University of Idaho, where he became a very successful football player. While he was there, as kids sometimes do in college, he re-examined his religious beliefs and decided to convert to Islam. And he changed his name to Abdullah al-Kid. Well, when the FBI had focused on Sami al-Hussein as being possibly a part of a sleeper cell in Idaho, they assumed that probably most of the Muslims and Arabs on campus were involved. So one of the people they focused on was Abdullah al-Kid. So they went to him a number of times to you know, uh, talk to him, and he talked with them, had no problem conversing, told them whatever he knew. He even offered to give the agents some lessons in Islam so that they would understand what they were dealing with and be able to do their jobs better. Um, the government evidently, although they clearly suspected him of being a terrorist, they realized that they did not have probable cause to arrest him. And therefore, under the Fourth Amendment, they shouldn't have arrested him. What they did instead was they arrested him as a material witness in the trial of Sami al-Hussein. They never told him what they wanted to say at the trial or what they were calling on him for. And in fact, he was never called to testify at any proceeding whatever. 
What did happen, however, was that he was shipped around the country in shackles from prison to prison in four different states for 16 days, kept in the harshest conditions. Um, he actually brought a lawsuit in Oklahoma for you know, the conditions under which he was kept, which was settled. It was pretty bad. Uh, Robert Mueller, on behalf of the FBI, announced to Congress that the FBI was having great success in catching terrorists and pointed to Abdullah al-Kid as a really bad terrorist who they had caught. Well, ultimately, although his life was also pretty much wrecked, because even after he was released, he was put under very restrictive parole conditions and was only restricted to a geographical area. His marriage broke up. He couldn't get a job, had a really hard time, and was never invited to testify. Now, again, I think that you know, we have here just what the framers of the Fourth Amendment were concerned about. People of good faith who were trying to keep us safe, who were looking too hard, and they were misinterpreting evidence. I'll give you one example from the Sami al-Hussein case. The agents thought that it was very suspicious that Sami al-Hussein had switched advisors in the middle of the year. Their thesis was that he was there in Idaho to have a sleeper cell and raise money for terrorists, and therefore his student work was all just a ruse. It was just a pretext. So they pointed to the fact that he switched advisors as a sign that he wasn't serious about his dissertation. <laughs> well, it turned out, had they dug a little deeper, it turned out he had switched advisors because his original advisor had cancer. And he was very serious about wanting to finish his dissertation on time. He was very, very close. He had a 3.8 average. And then the FBI entered his life. So here are a couple of cases that actually happened. But what's more important to me is the nature of the dragnet. It's not just the government made a couple of mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. It's that when you lay a net that's that broad, this material support dragnet, you are, you know, there's a likelihood of arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. And it could happen to other people as well. In addition, once you have these extremely broad laws that invite the government to be focusing behind the curtain on things like you know, a person's religion, that really, again, it invites arbitrary or discriminatory enforcement. In the Brandon Mayfield story that David was telling you, one of the reasons why a judge agreed to let Brandon Mayfield be arrested also as a material witness, that's how you know, they got him into custody when they didn't have a lot of proof that he had actually done anything. Um, one of the reasons why he was allowed to be arrested was that the affidavit that the agents had filled out said, uh, this guy is, you know, he's um, connected with terrorists. He's a Muslim. He's once represented this guy who's a Muslim. He represented Jeffrey Battle in a child custody case. He advertises his law practice in what they call the Muslim yellow pages. So there was something really going on that really made Brandon Mayfield, like Abdullah al-Kid, like Sami al-Hussein, more suspicious because they were Muslims. Should the rest of us worry? I think so. When you have these really broad dragnets, the Humanitarian Law Project found out that you know, those can apply to a lot of people. Uh, one thing that the material support laws did under the Patriot Act was eliminated any exception for humanitarians. So now you know, the Red Cross could be prosecuted. So here's one other assumption that everybody bought into in the fall of 2001. Well, the dragnets must be OK, because we just have to trust the government. Not only we have to give up some liberty, but we don't know enough. <coughs> and therefore, we have to give the government all this power to you know, do whatever is necessary, because what if? You know, what if they need the material support laws that broad in order to catch a terrorist they might not otherwise have found? We, we all know the president is not interested in prosecuting the Red Cross. So what's the problem? Again, I think the problem is with the nature of the dragnets. It just gives the government too much power. 
So if you look at, I'll really just give you two other quick examples just to you know, provide some grist for the later conversation. Uh, same kind of mistakes occur in all these designations that happen behind the screens. I only have to say no fly list and airports. Yeah, I think everybody gets that you know, there can be mistakes made there too because there's not a lot of process to pay attention to getting innocent people off of the watch lists. Um, surveillance, we know about. I think we'll talk more about that later. So the final thing I want to tell you, a whole, a whole other thing that the Patriot Act did, which a lot of people are really unaware of, unless you happen to be in financial businesses, is that the Patriot Act conscripts financial institutions, a very broad definition, including not only banks, but um, car rentals, jewelers, casinos, all sorts of people, to help try to find terrorist financing by um, know your customer information gathering, suspicious activity reporting, having to establish anti-money laundering programs, having to check all sorts of watch lists to the point where businesses have to buy Patriot Act compliance software because it's so burdensome. So businesses have spent an incredible amount of money trying to stop financing from coming from this country and going to Al-Qaeda. The 9-11 Commission staff, five years ago, did its own report on terrorism financing. And what they concluded was that the money laundering model that we were trying to apply in the fall of 2001 really is not apt because we don't really know enough patterns of terrorism. The financing just doesn't work the same way, as ironically WikiLeaks have just confirmed. And so basically they said that, and we've had a lot of confirmation of this ever, ever since, that the idea that financial contributions were flowing from within this country, from Brooklyn mosques to Al-Qaeda, was wildly overblown, if it was true at all. And there's been a lot that's happened in this country based on that assumption. In the past 10 years, we haven't looked at that assumption. So here's what my book is about. My book is number one, there are costs that a lot of people don't know about. Some are hidden by secrecy. Some we can begin to talk about because we do have some information. The costs are to ordinary Americans, not just to terrorists, not just to guilty people. We're not so sure really about the benefits about a number of these provisions. Reporters say to me, well, should we be you know, overturning the Patriot Act? Well, you know, it's hundreds of provisions. So you really have to break it down a little bit more than that. Some of the provisions I think may really have been based on incorrect assumptions about the nature of the problem, which is understandable because in the fall of 2001, we hadn't yet really figured out what went wrong on 9-11, and therefore it's a little premature to think you have all the antidotes exactly right when you haven't yet diagnosed the problem. Okay, the final two assumptions of post-9-11, um, the fall of 2001, we just have to trust the government. We don't know enough. We can't make the decisions ourselves, and that lack of knowledge should be enforced by secrecy. So to me, a lot of what the Patriot Act and all this companion measures do is it really, and this is my subtitle, it turns democracy upside down. The government gets to know everything about us, and we're not supposed to know anything about what the government is doing. Um, the final thing I, I think that we'll get into, certainly during the question and answer, if not before, is the fact that although President Obama took a different position, as to Guantanamo and the use of enhanced interrogation techniques, his positions on the whole world that David and I are talking about, the surveillance, the material support laws, the um, you know, information gathering, is no different from that of President Bush. So you know, a lot of people, when Obama was elected, said, oh, you know, isn't this problem over? And as Tim said, a lot of people just relaxed. They thought, oh, well, this was just about George Bush. 
Well, I'll tell you, the ACLU was not about to go out of business and put that nice banner on our door saying, mission accomplished. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Um, our next speaker is Paul Rosenzweig, and I, I asked Paul to uh, kind of fulfill the role of a critical commentator here this afternoon. We think book forums are a lot more interesting when we can bring in a critical commentator so that we can get the benefit of hearing a contrary perspective, and it's always good to have a civil exchange of views, we think, at these policy forums. And I, and I really appreciate the fact that Paul agreed to read not just one book, but two books uh, for this event. Um, Paul is a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and he's also the founder of his own law and consulting firm uh, called Red Branch Law and Consulting. Before that, he served in the Department of Homeland Security as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy. And in that capacity, he was responsible for developing a variety of policies and plans uh, with respect to immigration and border security. He's held uh, several teaching positions around the country, most recently at Northwestern University School of Journalism. He's also the co-author of a book called Winning the Long War, Lessons from the Cold War for Defeating Terrorism and Preserving Freedom. And he has a new book coming out soon called Cyber Warfare. Please welcome Paul Rosenzweig. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot to cover. Uh, there are two books. I want to begin, however, by thanking Tim uh, for inviting me to come and talk. Uh, it is a, a good mark of an open dialogue that we get to discuss issues like this in a, in a, in a spirit of reasoned inquiry. Uh, I also want to begin before uh, turning to my task of saying what I think is wrong or, or mis misguided in these books. Uh, I want to thank uh, David Shipler and Susan Herman for writing two very good books. Um, they're elegant, they're insightful, uh, they're informative. Um, Though I will have disagreements with some of what's in them, uh, I would not want to begin without first acknowledging their quality. Uh, and indeed, if I can give you one piece of advice, uh, buy the books. They're very good, and they're well worth your reading, and anybody who's interested in uh, this topic will be well informed by having done so. Um, I know I certainly have been. Um, let me begin at a uh, 50,000 foot level, uh, and then turn to some of the specifics in a minute. Um, to read these two books is to be very depressed, right? and to make you think that we live in an incipient police state. And perhaps it's, it's the frame, uh, I like that phrase, perhaps it's the frame from which we come, but I just think that that's too, uh, too negative a view of where we are. Um, I don't care how you define liberty, whether it is the liberty of freedom from governmental intrusion, uh, whether it's the liberty of, of political discourse, if you think that's eroding, just go down the block to McPherson Square and, and listen to Occupy DC or the Tea Party people, if that's your preference. Uh, the liberty of personal choice is expanding uh, every, every day. Um, I think particularly of, of how the country is trending on issues like gay marriage. Uh, we retain economic freedom to work where we wish, uh, to travel where we want. Um, so though there are uh, to be sure, challenges and issues of give and take in the law and areas, I think, where we have gone off the rails to some degree in the post-9-11 world and in which I, I kind of agree with some of the assessment. Uh, the fundamental premise uh, that seems to underlie both these books is that we're 
on a, uh, an unending negative slope. Uh, and what I think that that misses is uh, the resiliency of, um, of our, of our uh, system of government. Uh, uh, something I should add of which uh, both uh, Mr. Shipler and, and Ms. Herman are a part, right? Uh, their job as critique, critics of the system uh, is to exert uh, counterbalances against the operation of the system. In doing that, they join the press, uh, Congress, to the extent that you don't think it's a completely ineffective institution, uh, and the rest of our representative government, the public, all those have a role. Uh, but equally true, I think, is that the resiliency of our, of our system, and this is, uh, uh, this is something that I think is missing from, uh, from the discussion in, in both these books, is the passage of time, which tends to have a self-correcting effect. I uh, would be the first to say that in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there were uh, missteps along the road uh, to uh, what Americans perceived as the need to enhance their security. Uh, but like so many things, I tend to think that the, it's a pendulum more than anything else, and it swings back. Uh, I look today at airport security, for example, and I see an increasing degree of questioning of whether or not the steps we've taken are the appropriate ones. And I predict that in the long run, um, uh, there will be a retrenchment on that to a more reasonable set of rules. Um, does it happen as fast as everybody would like, and, and certainly as fast as the ACLU and, 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 and David might like? Probably not. Uh, you know, the drug war is a perfectly good example where we haven't yet seen the corrective swing of, of events. But, but it, over time, it does happen. And actually, I was glad that you mentioned, Tim, the, the Kilo case, which was, I think, another one of those significant missteps. But the truth is that since Kilo happened in 2005, 43 states have passed laws uh, rejecting Kilo as a matter of statutory rule. Uh, so the pendulum swings. So um, let me begin my, my discussion by simply expressing disagreement with the idea that this is an inevitable slippery slope, and rather offer you the suggestion that the discussion, the ongoing dialogue between practice and, and, and theory, you know, has, has as its end the natural consequence of bringing America back to its midpoint. Um, let me turn a little bit more then to the specifics of what they've said. And I've, I'm trying to rework what I'm saying today because I want to respond kind of directly to some of the things that were, that were said in the talk. So, so bear with me. I agree um, that some of what has happened in the last 10 years is a change in the frame of reference uh, that was occasioned by, by the post 9-11 um, uh, uh, events. Uh, in the criminal law, we have a phrase. It, it goes back again, to, it, this time to Blackstone rather than Coke, which is better that 10 guilty go free than that one innocent suffer in jail. And that reflects uh, two things. It reflects a moral judgment, but it also reflects what I think is a cost-benefit analysis of what the costs are of error. And here is uh, the point of that is that there are two types of error involved in any enterprise. The false positive of mistakenly convicting an innocent person, but also the false negative of failing to convict someone who is, would be justly convicted under, under a criminal law uh, regime, right? And our uh, Bill of Rights, our Fourth Amendment provisions, as applied in the criminal law, make a clear statement that they're gonna favor the false positives uh, over the false negatives, that better that 10 guilty go free than that one innocent suffer. 
Um, and in a world in which the consequences of such a mistake are modest, for if we, if we neglect to convict a murderer, right, uh, you know, what happens? He's still out on the streets. He, convict, he, he commits a few more murders. Yes, horrible. But the ex existence of society isn't threatened by that. Um, that's a sensible judgment. What the frame reference has changed, what the post 9-11 reference has changed, is that that balance, we can't make that figuring anymore because we don't know the nature of the false negative consequence. We don't know what the horrific consequence might be of failing to catch a terrorist. Hence, the major shift in judgment from uh, post-event conviction, uh, prosecution and conviction, to pre-event prevention and detention. We operate under the fear of the false negative. Now, it's easy to caricature uh, Dick Cheney's, you know, the 1% risk of, of a nuclear weapon. And, and to be sure, if he were trying to actually assert a calculus, that would be the wrong one. But at the same time, those who are responsible for enforcing the law and ensuring American freedom um, operate every day, not just under the specter of getting it wrong in one way, but of getting it wrong in the other way, of failing to catch that terrorist, of failing to be responsible for that next event. Um, we should also understand that uh, you know, the idea of eliminating all errors from governmental activity is impossible, right? How many of you think that the police should be armed? Right? Okay, uh, almost everybody does. Uh, why? Because we think that the armed police uh, have a positive value of preventing crime. Right, uh, and, and that's a good thing. We all want to be secure in our homes. Uh, but it's absolutely true that the police make mistakes, lots of them. They shoot the wrong person accidentally. Some of the worst of them um, uh, you know, use their guns for malevolent purposes of their own to uh, shoot their, uh, their husband's lover or whatever. You know, the fact of error by itself doesn't mean that the power should be dis uh, discarded. What it means is that we need to assess, A, whether the power is necessary, and B, whether or not the oversight procedures that we have in place for correcting the mechanisms uh, that, that come, uh, the, the correcting the various errors that are inevitable, are the suitable ones. Um, so uh, in that frame, right, where the types of errors change, the, the consequence of the errors change, and where there is an inevitability of government error, that's what has kind of driven, at least from my perception, us to where we are now. An area where the government asserts um, uh, the need for enhanced powers to prevent the, the inevitable false negative, uh, uh, be more sure of preventing the false negative, and is willing to accept more errors on the false positive stage. Uh, and, and as Susan said, um, that's not something that was unique, that's unique to me, or that was unique to President Bush. Um, it seems to me a, a significant data point that we ought to at least acknowledge that a president like President Obama, who came into office uh, portending a great deal of change in this area, has from the inside, with what I would say is probably the experience of working in the area, seen uh, that the rules are better suited than he thought they were, and that the call for change is less. Um, that would be my take on uh, the war on terror. Let me turn uh, briefly uh, to uh, the criminal law piece that, that, uh, that David did. Uh, there, I actually have a lot more sympathy 
uh, for uh, his uh, description of the actual practice and the flaws uh, that uh, that he describes. I think uh, uh, that uh, uh, in that frame, which is the unchanged frame of the pre-9-11 area, uh, there's much to be condemned in the way we practice criminal law right now. Uh, where I think I would disagree with the premise of what David has, has written about is that it's a focus in his, in his book on proceduralism, on the procedural protections of the Fourth Amendment and how they have been changed and modified. And to my mind, uh, any set of rules is inevitably going to modify behavior. It's going to modify police behavior so that they develop these techniques to uh, elicit consent uh, from unassuming people. Uh, and it's also going to modify the behavior of people on the street, both of the innocent who will lift their shirt and of the guilty who learn the techniques uh, uh, from which they uh, uh, f by which they can avoid criminal uh, uh, conviction and prosecution. But those procedures um, are not in themselves uh, canonical. Uh, David, for example, contends or, or, or argued in his talk here and in the book that the idea of consent and not being informed of your right to consent uh, is, is a flaw in the Fourth Amendment uh, jurisprudence. But let's kind of look over to the other side at the Fifth Amendment, where we have, in fact, uh, enacted by, uh, by uh, judicial rule, a, 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 in effect, a consent procedure, the famous Miranda warnings. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that kind of procedural uh, rule benefits nobody except those who don't need it, right? Uh, the, the inevitable result is that in instances in which the police fail uh, to provide such a uh, such a warning, the confession is suppressed, right? And somebody uh, gets the benefit of the policeman's error, as Cardoza says, the guilty goes free because of the policeman's error. But who in America hasn't watched one Adam Twelve and doesn't know those warnings, right? More importantly, for anybody who's been through the system at least once, right? Which is many of the people who are under arrest, they've all had the warnings at least once before. So changing from a consent-based rule. Uh, from a non-consent rule uh, under Schneckloth to a consent rule uh, 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 akin to Miranda won't really change the behavior of anybody in the end. I think fundamentally where I would say we need to change criminal law is that we have too darn many criminal laws altogether, right? A world in which there are so many criminal laws on the federal books that the congressional research can't count it, and in which, as I sit here, as we stand here today, Congress is contemplating criminalizing as a federal felony the false identification of maple syrup that contains imitation maple, um, is a world in which we are fundamentally unserious about our understanding of what criminal law is, which is or ought to be re reduced to um, issues of, of manifest important murder, rape, robbery, those types of things. Uh, so. Let me, let me uh, uh, with the two-minute warning, let me end with two, two quick points, uh, though there's so much more to say. Uh, the first is uh, that one of my, uh, I guess it's complaints about the way that the debate proceeds, is that we engage in policymaking by anecdote. Um, and the Brandon Mayfield case is, is a perfectly good example, since, since both David and Susan mentioned I will I will as well. Um, the problem with Brandon Mayfield case, uh, besides the fact that it was an amazing screw up by the FBI, and there's 
that he deserved the $2 million that he got from the government for what they did that was wrong, is that it really isn't a good poster child for the idea of the Patriot Act being an expansive uh, an abusive uh, system. The Inspector General of the Department of Justice, a man named Glenn Fine, who has been for the last 12 years a thorn in the side of his department, not a man known for being at all in favor of the Department of Justice's operations, conducted a review of the Mayfield case. And he said that the Patriot Act had no effect on the government's decision to pursue uh, the search and surveillance authority in the matter. Um, you know, so the expand, you know, we want to make sure that as we define uh, the problem, we we dig enough into the details to make sure that the anecdotes um, uh, uh, really really tell the tale of a law that is wrong and not the tale of a uh, a case mistake that goes off the rails, of which there are, as I said, no doubt many. Um, I would close uh, by saying that uh, the hard reality of security today. Uh, both on the streets in the criminal context and, uh, in, uh, and in the terrorism context in particular, can't be reduced, I think, uh, to anecdote, and it can't be reduced to um, uh, simply or only claims of, of liberty as, uh, as being under assault. Rather, uh, we should be mindful of uh, John Locke's admonition, since everybody's quoting somebody from, from, uh, from the past, I'll, I'll start with him, uh, which, is, which he said, the fundamental liberty, this is in uh, his two treatises on government, the fundamental liberty is to be free from restraint and the violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law in government and is not, we are told, a liberty for every man to do what he likes. Order somewhere in government is an essential ground of liberty. Have we struck the balance exactly correctly? Exactly correctly, assuredly not. Are we in America more or less in the right place? I would submit we are. Thanks a lot.